But it is definitely a tough topic to think through, right? So we saw Paul and Silas had been unjustly dragged before the magistrates of Philippi and without conviction were beaten and thrown into jail. But what did we see? It had no purpose, no use, no good that came out of it whatsoever. No, it, it did. What, what happened there while they were in prison? Okay, that's right. There's an earthquake and there's all those details of the, the chains breaking off, the doors flying open. But in the end, yes, the, the jailer and then his family as well were saved and they were baptized, right? They, he brought Paul and Silas back to his house and Paul preached the word of the Lord to the entire household and, and the jailer and the entire household uh, were, were baptized as well. Um, and again, that should teach us that we have no idea uh, how God desires to use our circumstances and what he's going to do in our difficulties and our tough places uh, in our lives. But we can know that no matter what it is, uh, God is going to use it all for his glory. And so that then should cause us, as we believe that, as we believe what God has said, as we believe uh, his good working and sovereignty in all things, that should motivate us to patient humble obedience in all of our circumstances, uh, in everything we go through, in all of our difficulties, as we trust him. And then the next day we see that the, or the next day we're from when Paul and Silas uh, were at the jailer's house, the next day the magistrates sent the police to tell the jailer that Paul and Silas had to go. I mean, they, they shouldn't have been put in the prison without conviction to begin with, uh, but when the jailer told Paul that he was to leave and so told him to leave peacefully, Paul's answer was, no. no, that's right. If they want us to get out of here, they need to come and take us out. And we saw since they were publicly accused, uh, they weren't just going to allow the magistrates to secretly dismiss them with their charges publicly unresolved. So despite three levels of government authority telling them they had to go, the magistrates, the police, and the jailer, they said no. And then we saw that at that point, Paul pulled his trump card, which was what? That's right. He's a Roman citizen. And so Roman citizens were to be exempt from such beatings, except for certain charges, and they were to receive due process in a fair trial, which none of that happened. Now, so, the question was, was Paul practicing civil disobedience for the sake of his own vindication? Is that what we talked about? Why did we say he took this stand? We gave a couple reasons. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, if they were brought up on false charges, um, uh, as they preach, then, then others, the new believers there in Philippi, could be too. Um, and so, yeah, so there's protection for them. What else was said? No, you weren't here. <laughs> That's what you said. <laughs> Anything else? Um, that was the main thing. And then with that, though, comes what that injustice was. You know, there's the violation of Roman law. Uh, there was the fact that they, they were being mistreated and, uh, 
And then two, for the, even the, the sake of the gospel and the reputation of the gospel, those preaching the gospel, uh, that public vindication was, was important uh, for the, the testimony of the gospel. And, uh, and so they, they stood and they, they said, no, you, gotta, you need to take us out publicly. If you, you want us out of here, we're not leaving quietly. Uh, you, you come take us out for, for others to see. And then when they found out they were Roman citizens, they feared and trembled because that was a big no-no. And uh, so they came and they did as Paul, as Paul had demanded. And then they said, you, you've got to leave Philippi. And uh, Paul and Silas do, but only after. <laughs> they, they go to their guest, their, their host, Lydia, uh, and then they encourage the brothers there. Uh, and uh, once they did that, they, they did eventually leave. And then as we come to our text this morning, we see that they went to Thessalonica. And so let's read together Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he, re- he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and, and did a great many, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay. So... Paul and Silas, they travel through a few major cities there in uh, Macedonia until they arrived at the capital of the Providence, uh, the Providence of the second district there of Macedonia, and that was Thessalonica. And there in Thessalonica, as opposed to what they found in Philippi, was a what? A synagogue, right. And... Paul then followed his, his model of ministry, his M.O., and what was that? That when he goes to a new city, where does he start? In the synagogue, right? And so that's exactly what we see him do here. Verse 2 again, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, just for the record, I think we've talked about this, but in Romans, as, as we've seen Paul uh, use an imaginary Jewish opponent uh, to bring up questions against what he's teaching there about the gospel, right? And raise these questions so that he can answer those questions for his readers. Um, we talked about, well, where did those questions come from? And one of the uh, arguments for where Paul was getting these questions is that they came from his own experience of reasoning in the synagogues. 
that the questions Paul raises there in Romans were the questions that were raised against him when he was teaching the gospel. Um, so, and that, that very well could be the case. Um, now, some say, well, maybe these were the questions that he would have raised before he was a believer uh, himself. But either way, these are things that came from experience. And, and, and the things of interacting with the Jews as he preached the gospel, he would have known what questions to bring up, what, what the challenges would have been. And so uh, I think that, that's, that seems pretty reasonable and probably very, very likely. But in any case, um, we see here, Paul reasons in the synagogues on three Sabbaths. And again, what was he reasoning about from the Scriptures? All right, Christ had to suffer and rise again. So we see, again, it's from the Scriptures. He was explaining, uh, or you could say he was interpreting the Scriptures. Uh, and he was proving, or you could say, uh, that he was setting before them his case that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And again, though, he's, he's arguing this from the Scripture. So uh, what, what's in view here when it says Scriptures? The Old Testament. All right, right. The New Testament finished writing yet? No, it was being written. Uh, it, this was early on, too, so... Uh, when was Corinthians? I don't think, actually, it may, Paul's letters at least, the go, a gospel or so may have been written, but Paul's letters, yeah, I'm not sure, I forget what time period we're in at the moment, how early this is. This is about the mid-50s that we're in here. Um, but, think about that. So, from the Old Testament, Paul was reasoning, proving making a case that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again. Um, I think that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I think we might be able to think of some scriptures, right, that we could say, well, all right, Messiah had to suffer, right? What, what, does any scripture specifically come to mind? I bet you there's one that's, that's going to be the first one right off the cuff. Isaiah 53, right. You know, so that, that shows us, right, that, that Messiah had to suffer. Any other ones that show us Messiah had to suffer? All right, Psalm 22, right? Actually, Christ quotes the opening line to that psalm on the cross, right? Pointing, showing it points to him. Um, anything else? In a, in a general sense, I'm not thinking of specific passages except for those that mention the, the things. You can think of the, the sacrificial system. Right? That was supposed to point ahead to Christ. And the, the author of Hebrews makes it very clear how with the fact that they were repeated, so therefore you know, they didn't actually take away sin. They kept, it kept needed to be re-sacrificed, right? the, the old sacrificial system. And, and uh, they were pointing ahead to the sacrifice, that final sacrifice that would take away sin. Um, so, and there's other things, too, that we could look at and, and show that, that this points to Christ's suffering. But... What about the resurrection? Are there verses that point us to the resurrection in the Old Testament? There are some who say no. We don't see the resurrection anywhere, do we? Do we? All right. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is exactly true. So in Isaiah 53, 
Just for example, we've read verses 10 through 11. You know, so before this, you know, he, uh, uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us brought peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Um, uh, that he was, he was laid in a, a borrowed gra- grave with the rich. You know, we read all of that. Clearly dead, right? And then verse 10 and 11. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him as he put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, so his soul was a guilt offering, and if you know the sacrificial system, that is the idea of wrath-bearing, right? So he was there to bear the wrath of God as a guilt offering. Um, And then we read, he shall see his offspring. If he died bearing the wrath of God as a a guilt offering, how is he going to see offspring? Now, we may be confused. Wait, wasn't he not married? Doesn't he have, how does he have offspring? This is the fruit of his work, which is you and I. Uh, everyone who would believe because of what he's done. So he sees that. Um, and it says that he shall prolong his days. Well, wait a minute, he was dead. What do you mean he's going to prolong his days? And so again, we can see the resurrection. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and go on, the, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of, out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So again, out of the anguish of his soul. Out, this is all the following. And so there's an indication there. So yes, Isaiah 53, you're exactly right. Any other passages? Well, Old Testament passages. What was that? Um, no, I, I, I would argue that that's, that's, that's his work on the cross. Yeah, so we can take that for what he's going to accomplish on the cross. Yeah, but good point. Um, what about what we saw earlier in Acts when Peter pointed to David's words in Psalm 16? That you will not abandon me to Sheol, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Right? And Peter's point is, is David talking about him or somebody else? Did David's body see decay? Yep, David's like, we can go get his bones. We know where he's buried. <laughs> uh, who's he talking about here? He's talking about the Holy One. Um, and so we see Peter point to that too as well. Um, and, and really there's a sense where there, there is a plethora of things that we could go through, uh, when you see in the gospel of Luke with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and what does Jesus do? He opens their eyes to the whole of the old Testament of, of how the Messiah had to suffer and rise. And, and so we see those things. We see both suffering and resurrection in the old Testament. And again, though, Paul reasoned from the scriptures and, and you may say, well, these were Jewish people and that's true. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm going to say you still need to reason from the Scriptures with these things. Um, the Scripture is our authority. Uh, that's, that's where we point to to say this is what's true. The Scripture is the, the measure of truth, the standard of truth. Um, I think sometimes we get it backwards. We point to science and history as the standard of truth, but, but what happens? We discover something like, oh, what we thought was before isn't, because we di- discover that, and, uh, and, 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 and we, things are always changing. And, and what happens, too, especially when it comes to science, but it happens times with history, 
people misunderstand things, right? And so we stand on a thing that we think is true, but it's really a misunderstanding. And so, no, Scripture is our authority. Those things are not authority. Now, those things are evidences, and I'm not saying we throw them out altogether, but as we stand on the authority of Scripture, and we say this is what we see in Scripture, then because this is what's true, well, then we also see these things. You see, since this is true, you look out into the world, and, and you see the evidence, and the, the, we see the result of this truth. Right? But we don't use that truth as a judge over Scripture, because we're not the judges of Scripture. Scripture's the judge of us, right? Uh, and so we've got to be careful we don't, we don't flip that around. But this is what we see uh, Paul doing. He, he reasons from the Scriptures, and we too should reason from the Scriptures. Now, um, There are those, again, who, who read the Scriptures and they struggle with this whole idea of, of the resurrection in the Old Testament. They think that the resurrection is just as much of a mystery in the Old Testament as the church, but clearly it's, it's not. It's right there in the Old Testament. And uh, so as Paul is interpreting the Scriptures and presenting this case that Christ rose again, uh, we also see then he declares that since this is what Messiah was to do, he declares that Messiah then, or Christ, Jesus, is the Messiah, Right? Christ, Messiah, they're the same word. Jesus is the Messiah. And then verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And so again, some were persuaded, some among the Jews. So there's a couple. That's really what that's getting to. But among the devout Greeks, those, those Greeks that had converted, but not fully converted, but they did convert to worshiping the one true God from their paganism, many of those did believe. They were persuaded, and among them, many of them were, were leading women from the city. And so we see as the gospel is preached, we see the, the impact that it has and some could say, well, you know, I mean, among the Jews, it didn't really take very... It took from the Greeks, but not really much. But listen, one person being saved, that, that is the work of God in the power of the gospel. Even if it's only one Jewish person, and none of the Greeks, just that one person, that's the power of the gospel. Again, the result of these things are all up to God. This is all miraculous as Paul preaches and Silas preaches the gospel. And so then you have these believers in this city, new believers. And whenever there are new believers in a new place, what else then becomes there? These new believers gathered, gathered together. You have a church, right? And so because then, a little while after this, Paul can then write back to the believers there, to the church in Thessalonica, and encourage them. As a matter of fact, when he does that, very not, not long after these events we read here, he does write to them, and he wants to encourage them, and he recounts this time of sharing the gospel with them. And you can read that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 18. I just want to highlight some of what he says there in, in his letter to the Thessalonians. In, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, "...because our gospel came to you not only in word..." but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 
And then in verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And, and in a moment, we're going to see that affliction that they received the word with. Uh, but keep that in mind, they received it with joy of the Holy Spirit, even though they received it with affliction. Uh, and then it goes on, verse chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And again, we'll see that conflict. And then verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so again, we, we see this gospel preached here in Acts, there in Thessalonica. That this is exactly what Paul was referring back to. And as it's preached, conflict arose. So much so that even here in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see that Paul and Silas were driven out. They had to go. Back here in Acts, though, so we pick it up in, again, verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 5. It says, but the Jews were jealous. So, so you have these believers, a couple among the Jews, many among the Greeks, and, and a good number of those among the Greeks were prominent women. And so the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So they attacked the house of Jason. Now, kind of, his name is kind of just thrown out here, which would indicate that uh, Luke assumes his readers know who Jason is. Uh, he, he must be someone that was prominent. Uh, and what we see, even as you keep reading, he must have been Paul and Silas's host there in Thessalonica. And so that's why they would have attacked his house, hoping to find Paul and Silas there. And again, why did the Jews do this, though? What's the reason given? They were jealous. There are those among their number, a couple, but even among the, the Greeks that would participate in a limited way in the synagogue, they were led away from the synagogue to follow Paul because of this message, because of this Jesus that they proclaimed. They were jealous. And so Paul, with this gospel, as he proclaims the Jewish Messiah, he, he gains this, these followers. So they, they, they stir up the city. They, they, they get these rowdy rabbles together, and they drag Jason and others who trusted in Christ, they, they drag them before the city authorities. And they do this shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now, sometimes when we hear people say, you know, they've, they've turned the world upside down. And how do, how, how do sometimes we, we take that, that phrasing? Yeah. Yeah, they, they just made such an impact. They made such a change. They, they've turned the world upside down. That's not how they mean it here. <laughs> it's not positive here. Matter of fact, you can translate this as they have subverted or overthrown the world. Or you could say they, they caused trouble everywhere. So saying the world could, could just mean everywhere that they could go. They've caused trouble everywhere, and now they've come here. 
So that's, that's the accusation. But really, who were the ones causing trouble? Yeah, these jealous Jews, right? And, and the people, they, they got rowdy from the city. So, in any case, they, they, may have, they may have heard from other Jews as well about Paul and Silas and things that were going on there. Remember, we even saw some Jews chase Paul down from city to city that he'd go to when him and Barnabas were doing things. Uh, so, word clearly was spreading about them. And then again, you have this guy, Jason. He's indicted because he gave them lodging. And then the latter, pa- the latter part of verse 7 says, And they all acted against the decrees of Caesar. So, so Jason brought out, other new believers in the city are brought out, and they're all accused of acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So, so this is the accusation. Now, last time when we saw Paul and Silas accused, that was a what? A false accusation that was made against them. Is this a false accusation? So, to some degree it's not, right? Because who would they be proclaiming as king? Jesus. Right. I think the twist on it that's not exactly accurate, though, is that this is being proclaimed as if this is a, an overthrow-the-government kind of thing. Um, and that wouldn't have been the case, right? Um, they, they, they weren't looking to push a revolution. I mean, even as we, we talked last week, uh, Christians should be good citizens, right? Um, we should be known for our submissiveness. We should be the most submissive people there are. Uh, yes, again, as we did discuss last week, there are times when it is right to practice civil disobedience, uh, but they are specific cases, uh, when we can obey, we do obey. And even when there's things we can't obey, we obey everything that we can. Right? We're to have an attitude of submission. Um, and so this is an overthrow the government kind of deal. It is just, well, I mean, above all, Jesus is king. <laughs> he is my king, and I'm going to recognize him as that. I am going to obey him above obeying Caesar. I am going to follow him. But, but no, we're not trying to overthrow Caesar. Um, so yes, there, there is truth to this. There is an element still of fabrication as well uh, in the accusations against them. But then we read in verses 8 and 9, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. What, is a, what does it sound like that money that money is? They took money from Jason and they let him go. What was that? A fine. Okay, it could have been like a fine, yeah. Uh, a fine or a, a bail, either one of those uh, is what it probably really was. Um, so then they, they get out on this money. Again, though, that was unjust. It wasn't, wasn't right. They had done nothing to deserve that. But again, we see the conflict in which the gospel was preached. Right? Paul and Silas come preaching the gospel. People believe, and there's persecution immediately. And what happens to the church, this brand new church, young baby believers in Christ, what happens to them as they are immediately persecuted? Well, they, they at least in some ways, right? And I'm sure they grew a number. We're not told that specifically yet. But, but yeah, they, 
they, they, they stayed together, right? The church didn't disband. And again, how do we know that? Because Paul writes a letter to them just a little later to encourage the church that's still there in Thessalonica. And our, we see we have two letters from Paul to them. <laughs> and when we went through First and Second Thessalonians, uh, we talked about the Thessalonian church as an exemplary church. Was it a perfect church? Were there things Paul did have to address? Sure. But when we went through those letters, we asked the question, are we a church like them? We want to be a church like them. It was a good church. And again, this should be amazing to us. This church faced persecution right away. They suffered immediately because of the name of Christ. And yet they, they stood strong. They matured. They were a mature church. Even though when Paul writes them, they're still, they're still a baby church. Again, we're talking about the power of the gospel. We are saved, as we've been going through Romans, when we, what? Believe, right? We simply believe, and we are justified before God. We're made right with God. But when we believe, if we really believe, there's a change. There's a difference, right? And so you have people who are seeking things for themselves. People now, though, who are willing to suffer for Christ. You have people who care about what others think around them. You know, they're part of that Jewish community, and, and, and there is a lot of pressure that came, social pressure in that. And now they're like, no, I just care what Christ thinks. <laughs> you can do to me whatever you want. I can lose everything. doesn't matter. I have Christ. We see that with the Thessalonians, which is amazing. They were babies in Christ, and this is how they stood. How have you and I stood? I mean, just think back when you first believed. How was, how was your maturity in Christ? How long did it take you to grow? I can't speak for you. I don't think I knew any of you at that point. <laughs> I'm very thankful you didn't know me. <laughs> uh, but we do see the true power of the gospel. There is a change where we are willing to suffer for Christ and be committed to each other to remain with one another, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardship, because we are brought together. We are the church because of Christ. Look what he's done for us. How could we not love him and want to please him in all that we do? And so we see this, this church... Um, and so, again, wasn't a perfect church. Paul still had to address issues in the church. Sure. But what church is a perfect church? There ain't one. It doesn't exist, except for the, the one that's already in glory. Uh, that local church is perfect. Uh, and we'll, we'll join it one day. But, but here on earth, there's no perfect church, but, but we still want to strive to be a church like Thessalonians. So, listen, if you've never studied through First and Second Thessalonians, I would encourage that and say, all right, how, how can we be more of a church like that, um, even as we see? And so everything Paul said about them, receiving the gospel with joy and the power of the Spirit, uh, that's clear. And so, again, how did we receive the gospel? Do we receive it with joy? 
and the power of the Spirit. That that joy and power is evident in our lives now and continues to be evident through every season and aspect of life. As we reflect on the gospel, remind ourselves on the gospel, we should continue in that joy and seeing the growth and work of that power in our lives. So, any other thought or comments on these things? No? All right, well, we will continue on from Thessalonica on to Berea. And uh, that'll be fun. With that said, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together. We ask that you honor and glorify yourself in all that we do. Uh, we are so grateful, Lord, for the truth of your word and the power of the gospel that changes who we are, that we can't remain the same. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would glorify yourself in us in all that we do. We are, are thankful, again, for what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, taking our sin on himself. Father, I pray that we are in such awe of that, that we are are so thankful for Christ that knowing we have him, uh, we can lose everything and, and still say that, that we have everything. And, uh, Lord, that it would affect our attitude, affect our working, affect our, uh, our living in, in every area of our lives. And, uh, Lord, that we would seek to please you as we love you who first and so loved us. We thank you. Amen.